All right, everybody, and welcome back to the Business of Fitness podcast. On today's episode, we have second time podcast guest, Matt Molinex, founder of Huron. Now, Huron is a men's skincare company, and they do amazing, amazing stuff. Matt was a Stanford MBA student. While he was going to Stanford here in California, he was an NC Fit member, and that's how we met. So when he opened up his business, I thought it was really cool to get him on the podcast, hear from him what was going on. If you haven't checked out that episode, please go back. But today, they're celebrating their one-year anniversary, and I thought it was a really good time to get them on the show to listen to, hey, what was, the, what was your first year like, and what have you learned along that journey? One of the key things that he talked about was his first hire and the idea of uh, doing reference checks. He also talked about listening to the customers and allowing them to have some type of buy-in as far as surveys into his next products. Both of those two things, along with many others, I found particularly interesting and uh, insightful um, in our conversation. So I hope you enjoy this podcast. As per always, there's no paid ads on this show. So what I'd ask you to do, if you can, leave us a rating or review and also support our friends over at Huron. Help them continue to drive forward with their products. Guys, let's keep rising the tides. Keep getting after it. Hope you and your family are having an incredible day. Let's go. All right, everybody. So I'm here with Matt, and he's from Huron. And him and I always have this great debate about, or not debate, it's really not debate because I get it wrong and he gets it right. <laughs> I always say Huron, and it's Huron. So, Matt, welcome to the Business of Fitness podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time today. How's everything out there in New York? It's going very well. Very well. Thanks so much for having me, Jason. Appreciate it. Yeah, man. We were just talking about how things, because of COVID, you know, New York, San Francisco, these areas were so, um, really people would have like these small apartments because they would spend most of their time outside. And now because you can't go in as many places, you're kind of stuck in the confines of your home. And so I am curious, um, you know, a little over maybe, I don't know, eight months ago or so, we did a podcast together on um, the backstory of Huron, uh, how it came up to be and your brand story. And mm -hmm. I wanted to kind of start back there for those who haven't listened to our first episode. I recommend listening to it, but if you haven't, what is Huron the product? And then I wanted to dive into the brand story because I think you probably more so than anybody else that we've talked to, maybe not, you have a very strong brand story and the why behind it. And right now at NC Fit, we're rolling out these partner programs. And one of the big things we're talking about is like, what does your brand stand for you? And I think you do a great job with that. So I want to dive into what is it? And then we'll get into the brand. What does it mean? Yeah, sure. Certainly appreciate that. Um, so at the highest of levels, Huron is a clean men's grooming company. So we offer what we call A plus personal care products for guys everywhere. So you could be, you know, uh, we have a customer who's in his early teens from rural Kentucky. And we have a guy who's in his early eighties who lives on the West coast, who's been a dove for men buyer for like 30 years. So the gambit is actually pretty large, but the thought for us was always, could we create exceptional quality products and deliver that type of product to someone who's not willing to pay an arm and a leg for those products, right? So we say approachable or prices that don't break the bank. So at a high level, that's kind of here on, I think in kind of terms of my backstory and kind of the backstory behind the brand. So super quickly, I'm from Ohio originally, went to school in New England, kind of spent some time working in New York and finance, ended up moving to Chicago to, to do the same, to work in finance. But 
mostly around investing in consumer brands. And I think for me professionally, what was super interesting about the category was in kind of the 2012 to 2015 timeframe, there were so many interesting brands that were speaking to the female consumer, cool branding, super cool backstories, great price points. And, you know, I found, I found myself still going to my local Walgreens CVS to buy the same old products that I had used since middle school. Right. And I just right. thought that there was an incredible disconnect. So that was kind of the, you know, the personal side or the, rather the professional side that I was called kind of always interested in. I think for me personally, is I was just a kid that grew up with bad skin. So, you know, as an athlete growing up, played football, ran track, basketball, baseball, the whole nine. Um, and I just felt like I spent most of my life in sweaty workout clothes, running from practice to games, whatnot. Um, and my skin kind of, kind of took the, took the, the brunt end of that. And for me personally, you know, I had experimented with everything that you would find at your local drugstore to, you know, went to the dermatologist kind of later in high school and into college and really didn't find anything that worked. And I think the frustrations for me personally was, you know, on the surface, I was very healthy, right? I was a high school athlete. I was a collegiate athlete. I was eating well, I was weight training. I was getting tons of sleep, but my skin really didn't reflect that. And I think that was always kind of like the, the pain point of frustration that I had. And after spending some time working in Chicago, I ended up moving out west for business school. And Stanford, ended up, Stanford. Yeah. That's where we met, by the way. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So I uh, was actually in San Francisco one day and walked into, you know, what would be considered a quote unquote premium skincare store. And I hated the experience. I mean, I couldn't pronounce the, the store name. The person who was helping me was wearing a lab coat. It just felt like a very foreign experience. But I ended up buying a face wash and used the product and it worked for whatever reason. So that was kind of my light bulb moment, which was, okay, this product really works. I appreciate the output, but everything that went into that buying and purchasing journey, like didn't really click with me. So the thought was, could we actually create a branded assortment of products that performed like some of those higher end products or brands, but delivered them at a price point that made more sense, but also just like a tone of voice or relatability factor that was just completely missing from my experience in kind of purchasing this, that product with the first go around. And I think one of the things you, you know, that we talked about briefly before this is kind of this notion of, you know, brand story or, you know, what's your why as a brand? Why do you exist? I think for us, you know, we kind of say we exist, we're, we're here to help you help yourself, right? Like we want to give you an awesome assortment of products to choose from and give you some, some data and some facts behind the scenes, but ultimately let you kind of be the captain of your own ship. And I think for me, what was most important and it's kind of at the core infrastructure of our business is this notion of relatability, right? It's, it's not necessarily authenticity because I think brands have kind of taken that and run with it to say, oh, we have this cute little blurb on a website. Now we're authentic. Great. But I think for us, it's this notion of relatability where, you know, I've been in your shoes. Like I've wandered those same aisles. Like it sucks. And here's what we've kind of learned along the way. And I think what we've seen over the past year of being in business is, the more that we've kind of leaned into that story, whether it's responding to customer service emails, picking up the phone and calling folks, we've actually played with um, responding to Instagram DMs with, with voice messages, which is kind really? of super cool. Yeah, um, that's and cool. And has been awesome. And just like, hey, this is Matt from here on. Like, here's my take on your question with the face wash. Like, here are the things that I've tried. Here's what I hated. Here's why we built ours this way. And I think people just like that, that notion of, you know, that, that extra touch point that you don't oftentimes get with, with brands. So for us, it's really making the consumer kind of the, the North star and our first, second and third priority. And that's really been core to us since, since before we launched. And so I, I, I got to ask, cause I, I still love the idea. 
how did the name of the company come around? Because I, I still think this is a really cool way to attach a brand to something that's meaningful for the founder. Yep, yep, great question. So Huron was the street that I lived on in Chicago when my skin was arguably at its worst. So for me, it's kind of cool to like reflect on daily, like this is why we exist. This is why we're here to help guys in shoes similar to what we wore just a few years ago kind of figure this category out because it's not the, it's not the easiest to figure out. Right. And I think there's a lot of stuff out there, but none of that material oftentimes makes sense. And not a lot of brands are like that graspable or that relatable. And I think that's kind of the void that we're, we're trying to fill. Yeah. So a year ago, so Matt was a member at our gym NC fit here in the Bay area and he was going to Stanford for his MBA and we started connecting. And then once he moved back out to New York to start, um, his company, we stayed in contact, obviously. And over the years, we've gotten back together again a bunch of times. And it's been really fun for me to see the business grow over the last year. And in our, our first podcast together, we talked about some of the, the sampling that you did with different groups on the, um, you actually created a fake company and you learned a lot through that. And if you guys go back and listen to that one, but I want to talk about the, the, the present, right? So, so you brought up something that's really interesting to me is is um, digital marketing, where the community is at today. And so as a business, um, I guess we'll start here. You guys keep your product offering relatively thin. Um, for me in particular, I use your um, face wash and your body wash, which I'm one of those guys for the longest time I can remember, I just grabbed whatever bar of soap I could find and use it on my entire body, including my head because I have short hair. And you're the first one that kind of explained to me, hey, maybe you should use something a little bit different for your face than you do for your body. And that kind of stuck. And so you only have, I want to say, four products. And the only new product I want to say in the last year that you released was the under eye. Is that correct? Yep. Yep. So we have, why? why have you kept it so small? I mean, most of the companies that come out with you know, products like this have a slew of products. Yeah, really good question. I think for us, it was really to kind of better understand what our consumers not only want from us, but what expect from us. So we do a lot in terms of survey work, the surveying our existing customer base to say, hey, what brands do you typically buy from? You know, why do you like our products? What other products like would you expect that we carry in our line down the road? Right. And I think what's interesting there is we can almost create a base of customers before even launching a product. And I think what's been super cool is, that, you know, we're constantly in development on new products, but, um, you know, it's thinking about how can we start to involve some of our community into the product development process. So we have actually, it's, good, it's, a, it's a relevant question, but we have four new SKUs that will come out probably within the next two months or so that we've extensively pulled customers into the mix to get their feedback on, whether it's fragrance, whether it's in-use experience, whether it's how it compares to what they're currently using. And because that's kind of the base that we want to build from. So it's not like, you know, hey, we, we've used the top chemists or whatnot. Obviously, that's important. But we've used our own customer base to help develop products, to almost develop products in tandem. And I think building this brand together with our existing base is something that we're really, really proud of. So, you know, for us, we have an extremely high bar for the products that we want to bring to market. And if we're not raving fanatics over these products, then they're not ready to be launched into the market. Because for us, creating this notion of trust, tr transparency, and honesty, 
you know, if I'm not in love with product X, like I can't sit down and write you an email about how great it is because that's just not true. Right. So we are, we are constantly turning the dial and figuring out how we can make these products literally the best in class. Um, and it takes a while, but you know, we're willing to put up the, up, the upfront investment to make sure that that's indeed the case. So a year ago you guys launched and since then, have you guys seen progressive growth, um, like consistently for the last year? Like you month over month growth. We have seen consistent month over month growth. Um, I think, you know, for, for better, for worse COVID for us. And I think a lot of the kind of companies in the broader personal care category have seen a bit of a tailwind because as you alluded to earlier, people are spending a lot of time in their own homes, apartments, et cetera. So there's a lot of time for kind of reflection around what am I actually putting in my body? You know, what am I, what's in my bathroom currently? And I think there's a, there's a willingness to kind of invest in, hygiene and self-care and just taking better care of yourself. So, you know, what we've seen over the past three or four months has actually been explosive growth, which has been very, very exciting. But for us, it's, you know, we're constantly heads down to say, what can we do to not only broaden the top of the funnel and get in front of new customers, but how can we better serve the customers that we currently are fortunate to have? Well, and, and you know, there, there was this, uh, there's this quote, you know, you could dig uh, on a thousand mine uh, uh, drill holes for oil, or you could go really deep with one. It sounds like you're trying to go deeper with your current customer base while still obviously increasing the top of the funnel. Totally get it. But my, my question is, um, you said something that's really unique to me. When you guys are deciding between new products, you're actually um, surveying current um, customers. So how does that process look like? Because I imagine there's a fine line in, in us at NC Fit. There's a fine line between serving your members for feedback and serving your members or customers to actually create trajectory for your business. Meaning like if you listen to them too much, maybe it skews your trajectory. Where's that fine line between listening to your customers versus allowing maybe the vocal minority to, to take you in a direction that you don't feel comfortable with. I'm curious. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, and I think that's probably more of an art than a science, right? It's hard to say like, cool, at this, at this position, like we need to pivot to go X. Um, I think for what we were looking for in that early survey work was just common threads, right? Like what, what is kind of common elements of feedback, whether it's not, we don't like the caps or we wish this was a bigger size or like the fragrance is awesome. So, so you, you're kind of looking for those common threads. I think for us, and this is a really good point that you brought up, you kind of have to be a little careful in terms of how often you're going back to that customer base, right? You don't want it to seem like you're surveying them every two weeks and then this becomes some huge onerous task. It's actually quite the opposite. It's you position it as, hey, we really value your feedback. How can we get better? You know, what isn't working on your end? Also, what is working, but more importantly, what isn't working so that we can grow and scale together? And I think we, you know, we're on a cadence right now where we're surveying our base once a quarter and that seems to be like the right cadence such that we're getting extremely high um, survey participation rate. And then we're giving a little carrot as well, right? Whether it's a few bucks off next purchase or, you know, one free product with your next order, something like that. But it's, it's, it's agreed that it's a, it's a two-way street. And then we turn around and we share those findings with the folks that participated. It's like, hey, here's what we learned. Like, thanks so much for participating. So at least people feel like they're a part of this overall growth process. Yeah, I think nowadays... Um through e-commerce, I think that I think that the, the customer does want to feel like they're a part of the brand a little bit more, and that's a great way to make them feel connected. You know, one of the things I always say about putting out surveys to our members is that, you know, that information is really valuable, but I think what's also really valuable is that 
they know that we at least care enough to ask for their information. If that, yep. yeah. And so you brought up something about Instagram and videos, which I found to be pretty, uh, I mean, you know, that's cool. Um, voice memos um, aren't as popular in the United States, but voice memos are actually pretty prop popular internationally, I've seen. And I've been starting to use it a little bit over text thread because you get more emotion into what you're doing. But I'm curious from an Instagram perspective, is that your largest channel for distribute or a largest marketing channel? And with direct messages, have you seen a significant difference with incorporating audio versus text? I'm curious. Yeah, I would say kind of like the broader Facebook Instagram ecosystem is, is certainly our biggest acquisition channel. Um, I think we have to be a little careful in that field because A, it's oftentimes everyone's largest acquisition channel. And it's just very crowded and noisy, right? So you can spend a lot, a lot of money creating content, fine-tuning content, finding the right content creators, et cetera. Um, but we, what we've learned, again, over time is when we dial things back to just being like a humanized brand, right? Like put a face with a name, tell a story. Like it doesn't need to be airbrushed and perfect quality and all this stuff. I think people are starting to resonate more with stuff that looks more real versus that looks beautiful, right? Mm. So. I think that's certainly one channel for us. And then secondly, you know, we've been very fortunate enough to have a, you know, a pretty good audience in terms of email subscribers. So, you know, we will reach out to that base periodically, but the way that we kind of think about that in general is unless we have some tremendous value to add, whether it's a new product, something's back in stock or just something we feel like we need to tell our, uh, our base about, we don't send emails because so many brands now are just like, lettering your inbox and then after a while you get tired you unsubscribe and that's the last thing we want so right we really you really try to protect kind of this notion of kind of um you know go easy on the inbox inbox i'm sure it's the same way for text you know you you want to tap into these folks when you feel like you can actually add a tremendous amount of value but between kind of the the growth side through facebook which is our primary acquisition channel um and then through some retention stuff on email those are kind of our two biggest um you know results drivers and so do you have someone actively um, monitoring DMs so that they're actively, I, I guess, I'm, but I'm, I'm curious, compared to text over voice, have you seen anything different or, or is it too early to tell? It's a little too early to tell. We've only started the, the voice messages thing about a few weeks ago. Um, but what I've seen overall is people are like, wow, like this is kind of cool. Yeah, right? it's different. Right? Yeah, it's yeah. a shock factor. It's a little different. And I think, you know, in a world where, there's automation for everything, right? Like if you log onto a website, maybe you get a chat pop, pop up that's managed on the back end through AI and all this stuff. That's great because that means you don't have to manage it, but it's bad for a brand because you miss out on those communications, right? And for us, like that is literally the most valuable point, um, maybe in our day, right? It's, it's customer experience interactions where we can put everything down, pencils down and one-to-one -one, understand, hey, like how'd you hear about Huron? Or be like, like what's troubling you? Like, you know, what didn't go well with our last order? Or you seem to be a, a huge fan of this product. Like, that's great to hear. Have you tried this product? So I think we can engage in meaningful conversations that, you know, you lose out on that opportunity when everything is automated. So with the voice memo thing, that's certainly something that is time intensive and it may not be scalable over time. But I think while we're kind of in our infancy as a brand, you're supposed to do things that aren't scalable, right? Because that's how you can kind of create this, wildly loyal base of a few thousand customers who will hopefully be your biggest brand ambassadors going forward. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a really, um, 
That's a cool touch point. I just want to kind of highlight is what you said over time, you know, and, and again, this, this goes for our business too. We, we look for scalability, of course, right? Makes sense. But as you're building up that, that core group, um, using us as an example with our partner program, there's some stuff we're doing with our partners right now that is not scalable. And we know that, but we got to dive really deep with these guys so we could have this audience that knows how much we care because we do care. And the voice note is really interesting because nowadays, People don't know if it's an automatic message or if it's someone there. Um, and I think the voice is pretty clear cut. I mean, it's someone actually returning your call or whatever. I think that's, that's really, that's fascinating. So I'm curious how that continues to pan out. We got to stay updated on that. But I think for any gym owner or coach, you know, if you have a hundred or 200 members and you can't dive deep with them through engagement like this, we're probably missing something because it's not that many people we're talking about. You know, for you, it's a couple thousand, let's just say, diehard customers. I mean, it's not that, we're not talking about millions of people. Right. Um, and so, you know, you've been in business now for a year coming up on what next week is a year. That's right. Monday. Congratulations. <laughs> and so in the last year of, of operating a business, you know, you're an intelligent guy. You, you've gone to great schools. You had a great MBA program at Stanford, arguably one of the best in, in the world. What did school not, not position you well for actually practically owning and operating a digital business um, and a product-based business? I'm, I'm curious, like, where was the gap you saw between school and, and practical application? That's a great question. I mean, I, mean, I think, you know, obviously had a great experience at Stanford and, and learned a ton and met a number of awesome people, but there is no substitute for on the job training, right? There, there's only so many, so many case studies that can be written. Um, and I think there were a lot of personal learnings on, on my end. Like, I, you know, I think we talked about this a little bit in our, in our first conversation, but you know, I'm someone who's decisively indecisive. Like I can belabor the finest point, like ad nauseum for hours and hours and hours a day. And like, that's a weakness of mine. And I think one of the things where I've gotten much better over the course of this first year is like, just go. Like there are going to be things that are broken and that will be wrong and that will need course corrected. But the more you kind of sit on the sideline and, you know, and tweak and adjust and fine tune and aren't playing on the field, like those are moments wasted. And I think we've shifted a lot now to say like, let's just sprint at things a hundred miles an hour. Now having like a really good game plan. So it's, it's not like a total crapshoot. But just putting things in motion and reacting accordingly is something that we've really shifted on over the past probably four to six months that I think has seen kind of and made meaningful impacts to our business. Um, you know, the other thing that, you know, that I've learned is, I mean, we're still a, an incredibly small team. We're, we're, th we're a corporate team of three. And one of the things that we've been pretty good about since the start is really diligencing a lot of our partners, which vendors, if you want to call them, we call them partners but then going very, very deep with them once you decide that they're the right partner to work with. And why I kind of made this distinct, distinct distinction between vendor and partners is the, the vendor-client relationship to me is very transactional, right? It just feels like vendor A does the work, client pays said invoice, whereas I want these partners to feel like they're an integral part of our growth as a brand. So we tell them what's happening in other categories that are outside of their direct scope of work. Such that over time, then someone will say, 
hey, I know you guys are launching a new product in two weeks. Like, what if we did this instead of this? Because I think it would propel things in a different way. And we would never get that type of forward thinking from traditional quote unquote vendors if you didn't invite these people in and actually make them part of your overall growth story. So that's one thing we're really, really proud of. And I think that, you know, while we invite those people in, um, A, the diligence up front has to be there to make sure that you're actually onboarding the right group of folks. And then B, if for whatever reason that's not working, like you got to cut the ties quickly um, because you can stay in kind of toxic relationships for a while that can burn time, energy, money. Um, so, you Which know, just easier said than done. I mean, for sure. so for you guys, you guys have relationships with vendors or quote partners. How many of those partners do you have? Probably in the neighborhood of like five to seven across fulfillment, product development, creative director, web developer, et cetera. So those folks, again, like don't sit as part of the corporate team, but almost everyone in that ecosystem knows exactly what's happening across the board. And I think that's given us a lot of runway to kind of, again, kind of sprint faster now that we have everyone up to speed. Um, and it just makes it, it creates a, like almost a safe space, but also an area for, for buy-in amongst that uh. partnership base because they feel like they're actually part of the team. Again, not just a transactional arm. Yeah. So how do you do that? So I'm curious, like um, when you're originally saying vendor, I wasn't quite sure exactly what you're talking about, but now I, now I do. So you have, let's just say a web developer, you have potentially even like on your product side, right? You have like a manufacturer, you have different people. Do you have like monthly calls with all of them and tell them what's going on? Is that the way you're doing it or what are you doing right now? Yeah. And it's oftentimes much more frequently than that. So usually it's weekly, if not a few times a week. Um, because again, like there's so many things happening right now that we need everyone to be in sync kind of across the board. Uh, so obviously we're always on email, but yeah, we're trying to hop on the phone with, with basically our, all of our partner base at least once a week to make sure that everyone again is kind of up to speed on, on what's happening. And have you had to cut ties with any of those partners over the last year? We have. I mean, and it's obviously not the easiest thing to do. But, <laughs> no, it sucks. You know, yeah, it does. It does. But at the end of the day, like it's kind of an X's and O's business in, in certain areas. In certain areas, it's not. But in most areas for us, it's an X's and O's business. And we have to say, look, like this is either working for us or it's not. And I think one of the things that goes into that, that diligence input is actually contract negotiations. So making sure that there's a way for you to get out if things go bad. Because obviously when you're kind of in the interview phase and you're speaking with a potential vendor partner, um, everything is rosy, right? Like what they're, what they're bringing to the table is amazing. What they're pitching is great. It's going to grow your business three X faster than you thought it would. And then you get onto the field and things might not work right now. Hopefully they do, but things might not work. So you have to constantly be thinking about how do I protect our end of things if this doesn't actually come to fruition? And I think that's, again, an area where we've learned over the course of this first year to say, we can't do a six-month contract. It's got to be month to month, or it's got to be at most three months. And then that at least gives us time to say, hey, this is a great working relationship. Like, let's extend another three months, or let's keep going month to month. Or, you know what, like, unfortunately, this isn't working out. Like, really appreciate what you've done, but we need to cut ties. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Um, and so when you're looking at e-commerce... And, you know, obviously things are changing rapidly. Uh, E-commerce has boomed due to COVID, of course, in, in, from Amazon to this to that. Um, but there's, it's, it's a noisy world out there. And so you've alluded to it a little bit where, you know, hey, customer focus, 
customer service, but how do you see e-commerce in particular? How has it changed and how do you see it changing? Because as more companies go on to e-commerce, because brick and mortar is becoming a little bit challenging, there'll be more people fighting for the same ad space. So I imagine ad spend will, will need to go up. But where do you see e-commerce going? And uh, I'm, I'm really curious on that because for anybody who owns a gym and they, they want to do e-commerce to drive people in or whatever they do for a business, you know, e um, there's always e-commerce like merch or whatever it is. But then you also can have advertising to drive people into your location. So where do you see it going? Yeah, I mean, I, I think for the indefinite future, we're on like a, a one-way speed track in terms of e-commerce growth. I mean, I think e-commerce growth is about like 10% of overall retail sales last year. And that number, I think, is going to explode, just given what, especially what's happened over the course of 2020 with COVID. But I think what you've seen, even in the past few months, is a lot of larger traditional brick-and-mortar retailers who basically basically been forced to enter the e-commerce sphere, whether they're ready or not. Um, and look, like it's not, it doesn't take a rocket science, scientist to spin up a website. Like these things are actually pretty easy to put together. There are so many tools out there to get you from A to B. But I think just having a presence matters so, so much these days. Um, and to your point, whether it's programming or a place to advertise or merch, et cetera, I think having some presence digitally such that customers can identify you um, on the e-commerce side, um, but also, you know, couple that with a brick and mortar presence. I think it just, you know, the two of those can really, uh, you know, create a kind of a one plus one equals three scenario. But, you know, but for us, I mean, we, we don't see e-commerce going anywhere. And I think, you know, the, the fact that everyone's always on the go, the fact that everyone's on their phone, I mean, mobile for us is huge. So when we design things for web, for instance, like everything is mobile first. And then we talk about how things look on desktop. So, I mean, we just live in, in such a connected world that people, uh, or on the go all the time and being able to cater to that vis-a-vis -vis convenience, e-commerce, et cetera, uh, is increasingly important. Yeah. And so when you, when you opened, um, a year ago, obviously, you know, you came out with a slew of products, you're listing your customers, you're diving deep with them. You're, you have some new products coming out in the future. Are they staying within a similar scope or where, where are you going? I mean, you, what products do you have coming out? I'm curious. Are you allowed well, to talk about it or are they secret, I, top I, secret? I, I, I wish I could say. Um, so the way we've talked about here on is that the kind of the cliche answer is we want to own the guy's bathroom, right? But that's like not really on brand for us. The way we like to voice it is we would like to have an answer for any question you may have in front of the mirror, right? So whether that's, you know, soap that I'm using, face wash I'm using, what I'm putting in my hair, like, et cetera, wink, wink. Um, you know, in theory, we could have an answer for that. And I think that's kind of going to be our driving force. And then ultimately leveraging our existing base to test out some of those hypotheses to say, is there a need for this product? Is there a need for that product? What is the hierarchical order in terms of products you'd like to see next from us? So it's, it's a little bit kind of knowing kind of what the, where there's white space within the category, but then also tapping our existing base to see what makes sense for us as a brand. Yeah. I, I'm excited to see what comes out. So um, you've grown. So when you first started, did you have three people on the corporate team? And have you had three people the entire time? So we've, it, it was a team of two. It was myself and my co-founder who's named also Matt, coincidentally. Uh, and then we made basically our first hire uh, the second week of March. So what's funny is we've actually never worked 
in the same office space together because of COVID. So we've, we've been a remote team since basically the second week of March. And do you think, uh, do you think brick and mortar offices for at least for your company, would that be something you're interested in, or do you think you could work remotely and be perfectly fine? So I was nervous about the transition to remote, to be quite honest, because it, there's no replacement for being able to turn around and ask someone a question, right? On Slack, on email, on text. I mean, you might get an answer 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes later versus what you'd get in 10 seconds. Um, but that being said, I mean, we've, we've adjusted pretty seamlessly and I've been really, really happy about that. So before COVID, we were in a shared space. We were in a WeWork uh, and it was great. But I think what this has shown us is it's not necessary, right? Like we all have access to high speed internet and places to work and, you know, our fulfillment center like has all of our inventory. So we're not worrying about shipping things out necessarily. So it's something that I think we could transition to pretty easily. And so when you made your first hire, you know, I know I could speak from experience that hiring is not the easiest thing um, because you got to find the right people. And so here you are, um, four months ago, you hired someone for the first time, right? Your first big hire, right? You had these partners, but those are kind of arm's length deals, right? Where you could hypothetically get rid of them. When you bring on an employee, you know, the last thing you want to do is bring on an employee, train them, whatever. And then all of a sudden a month later, realize they weren't the right fit. So what types of things have you learned, um, at least bringing on that first employee? How long did it take you to get to know this person? What was the process like? Um, and would you have done anything different? I'm curious for your, your first hire with the new business. I think it's a big deal. It's a huge deal. And it was one that I wanted to make sure that we left no stone unturned or box unchecked. Right. So when we were asking for references, for instance, we even to back up. So we met probably three times in person pre COVID. And the first two times we talked almost nothing about the business. I was there to basically listen because I wanted to hear Johnny's name. I wanted to hear what his professional aspirations were, where his interests lie, like what he likes to do at his current job, what are his, what are his pain points. And from there to see, A, not only is there a fit for what we're doing at Huron, but also is there a cultural fit? Because when you're a team of two growing to three, like you're adding 50% to your team, right? It, it, it's a big ad. Right. So there's a, there's a lot of upfront time just spent on kind of getting to know each other. And then secondly, when we went into reference checks, we asked for I think three or four references and I ended up calling 12 people. So every conversation I had about, you know, Johnny and his background, his performance, I was like, can you also recommend two other folks that I should talk to? You and called you kind 12 of, people before you yeah. hired this guy. <laughs> okay. And we're, yeah. and we're looking back on it was 12 necessary. You think you could have gotten away with two? I probably could have gotten away with two, but I wanted to feel like this was 10,000% the right hire. Right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, there's me being decisively indecisive. Right. Um, but no, like I wanted to understand like what, what were the opportunities for growth? You know, we don't want like to say like areas for improvement, but opportunities for growth. Right. Um, and just understanding like how will this working relationship actually come to fruition such that after all those conversations, I knew what our working relationship was going to be like before he even started. Right. And that gave me a lot of confidence that this was indeed the right person. And I mean, he's done a tremendous job for us thus far. Um, he, he's been a total rock star. And I think one of the things that we initiated shortly after onboarding Johnny is, is we do a one on one every every Thursday. So for an hour, it's, hey, what happened this week? What were pain points or frustrations? What could I or we be doing better to make sure that we're kind of growing and scaling in the right direction? What do you need from us so that you can do your job effectively? And again, you, my, my role in those conversations is to listen. 
And I think that's created a ton of open lines of communication such that nothing is boiling or festering kind of behind the scenes, right? You know, again, we miss out on that opportunity to interact one-on-one in person every day. So you kind of miss out on body language, on mannerisms, on certain things you can kind of like, you know, um, take as a clue if things maybe aren't going so swimmingly. But I think carving out that time to actually talk one-on-one and figure out how the past week has gone, where are we going, you know, how are things from my perspective, vice versa, has been huge for us. And it's something that I would recommend to literally anyone in any line of work. Yeah, that's cool. I, you know, something that we could do better at at NC for sure is doing more. Um, we do background checks and all that stuff, but it's a big difference. We get on the phone with different people. I've worked with these people say, hey, these are the strong points. These are this and that in a very constructive manner. So that's that's good. Um, and then, yeah, the weekly the weekly meetups, I think we we could probably do a better job at our company where we do them as, as teams a lot. But that one-on-one interaction, like even like you and I talking right now, it really gives you a chance to like kind of put the business aside for a second, make sure from a human perspective, you're on the same page. Cause if you're not driving this way, then the business side won't do as well. And so I think this digital age will start to see a lot more of this, like, like setting up one-on-ones, um, which will probably be helpful. And so, you know, it's been really fun to watch here on, you know, really build. It's been beautiful to watch. And I think that anybody who hasn't tried your product, um, you know, I'm not a paid spokesperson for Huron, I'm just a big advocate because I think your body wash smells amazing. My son is the worst. This kid, he takes your small jugs, which they need, they, they hopefully will get bigger in the future. And he'll just use so much soap that like we go through these things like in a month. But um, for anybody who wants to dive in deeper with you and your brand, because I'm, I'm, I'm for one, a big advocate. You keep it super simple. You know, your niche, you're going after it. Um, how can someone um, try your products if they're interested? Because it's all e-commerce, right? Yep, yep. So um, a few ways. So A, our website is just usehuron.com, U-S-E-H-U-R-O-N.com. Um, and we have kind of an ongoing promo, which is get five, which is $5 off your first order of $20 or more. So that's kind of the best way to sample. We also have a 30-day money, uh, money back guarantee, where for some reason you're like, hey, this isn't for me shoot us an email and we'll refund you on the spot. You know, no, no big deal whatsoever. Um, if there are any questions or, you know, they're, you know, hey, I have a question about this product or that product, um, Matt at useyearon.com. So you can always send me an email. That's, that's super easy. Or send us a DM at, at useyearon and you're likely to get a voice message back. So, so all right, we're going to put this to the test. So um, I'll also talk about this in the intro, which is, you know, send Matt at use her on an email or hit you up on Instagram. Let's see what happens. But from a scent perspective, how would you describe your body wash? Because um, what's the best way to describe it? Because before someone buys something, typically they like to touch, feel, smell, whatever, sure. specifically body wash. So how do you overcome that? I'm, I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, I mean, fragrance is really, really tough, right? And I think that's the, the one element that it's really hard to communicate, whether through email or text or honestly even listening. So, um, you know, one of the, like our, our broader kind of ethos for fragrance is clean, clean and fresh. And it's like, well, what does that mean? So two of the, two of the ingredients that we've used in the body wash in particular um, are eucalyptus and menthol, which are kind of well known for being a very kind of clean, invigorating um, slightly elevated kind of fragrance profile. And I think that's one where we're super excited about. Um, we also just launched sample packets. So like sample body wash packets, 
Um, so maybe exclusively for these listeners, if, if folks shoot me an email, I can send them on a, a sample packet of the body wash, which is like a single shower. But um, yeah, I think, I mean, fragrance is really, really tough and it's very subjective. What may smell great for you may smell awful for me. So I think it, it's one thing that, um, that we've been excited about that so many folks have written in and been like, this smells fantastic. Yeah. So we're really confident that we're in a, we're in a good spot with, um, with kind of our base fragrance. Well, my son and I love it. And so it's been super exciting to hear, the, you know, how your first year has gone. Um, I think, you know, obviously there's quite a few major takeaways for me, but I'm really intrigued by the 12 different um, interviews you had for your new hire. That's a really cool, interesting takeaway. And then also just the diving deeper and surveying the, the, the current customer base, I think is something that um, we could all kind of take into consideration. So mm -hmm. go on, use her on.com. Use the code uh, get five. Get five. Yep. For five dollars off. You can email you at Matt at useheron.com. And if you want to see a video of, of one of the team, go on Instagram. But um brother, I really appreciate your time and um I I I, uh, I look forward to seeing all the growth and what you have to come and keep crushing it and uh let's keep doing amazing things. Sounds good. Thanks so much, Jason. Always a fun time.